Brittany Packett said, an ally shows up when it is convenient, an accomplice shows up when there is a risk. I am Tamara Ross, and this is Ally to Accomplice. Take a risk and join me on a learning journey where we will hear from smart and generous individuals who will help guide us to use our power and privilege to challenge the status quo and create equitably inclusive spaces for all. Once you have seen injustice, you can't unsee it. We are obliged to act. This podcast is being recorded in the Treaty 7 region, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. I am grateful as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play here, and strive to live in right relations to all those human and non-human who call this place home. Alexia McKinnon is from the Champaign-Ashak First Nations in the far north of the so-called Yukon Territory. Lexi received her Bachelor of Arts in Canadian Studies from Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick, and completed her MBA in Aboriginal Business and Leadership at the Beattie School of Business at Simon Fraser University. Prior to focusing on governance, Lexi worked as the Yukon's Community Arts and Culture Liaison. She also served as the Special Assistant to the Yukon's Premier and Executive Assistant to the Yukon's Minister of Tourism, Culture and Justice. Lexi joined the BAMP Centre for Arts and Creativity Indigenous Leadership Program team in 2012. As the Associate Director of Indigenous Leadership, she designed programs aimed at utilizing the strengths of communities as a way to create solutions honoring traditional Indigenous knowledge and governance through a contemporary lens. Lexi is passionate about systems change, social innovation, and design thinking from the teachings learned through an Indigenous worldview. During her time at the BAMP Centre for Arts and Creativity, Lexi led the institution's Truth and Reconciliation Framework. Her first task was to create a Truth and Reconciliation Summit in 2016, asking the question, what would it look like if we could inspire a community to advance the action of truth and reconciliation in their lives, organizations, and communities? This is where my real introduction to Lexi began and my own learning journey. From that summit, she co-edited the Truth and Reconciliation Summit report, which provided a data-informed approach to advancing truth and reconciliation. This report was then utilized to design BAMP Center's own Truth and Reconciliation Through Right Relations program. Lexi is embarking on a new adventure as Director of Indigenous Programs at the Beattie School of Business at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. Hello, Lexi, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to this podcast to talk about your work. I'm so happy to be here. Can you talk a bit about your work and subsequent philosophy in designing programs? I don't even know where to begin on answering that. And I think possibly it might be because of the way that my brain works and how I've been taught to bring programs to life. And I think it's about testing a theory and a hypothesis, creating an arc and a flow, and then constantly testing it and reiterating and redesigning it. So I know that's a lot of the process that I do and subscribe to and trust and hold in. So I kind of like thinking of it in circular time. So I spend a lot of time thinking, talking to lots of people and asking questions and listening. And then after I do that listening round, I map out something of what I think that I heard. And then I bring it back to those same people and others and kind of expand that circle of knowledge. And then I seek and listen to that feedback again. 
And then I call what I go into from circular time into linear time. And so I kind of take and all that wisdom that's been swirling about and then see what emerges. And then that's what I test with again. And so we'll run the program and we'll get the feedback and then make small tweaks. I think the other thing that I've learned with designing programs, which I think might be a little bit different, is I always try to start designing programs in ceremony. So having the knowledge keepers and wisdom keepers of the land and sit in ceremony and try to tune in to the bigger conversations that are happening and guiding the work. Sitting, being present. So not only listening to people, but listening if we're gifted with our ancestors coming to visit, the signals and messages from the natural world. And oftentimes we're reminded of certain stories and songs and protocols from the communities that we come from. And so I hold all of that when I design a program. I think when I started, my guiding philosophy was more about being inclusive of Indigenous wisdom and knowledge. So building upon a structure that was already there. And I think as I developed my tools and skills for program design, I think it evolved into starting from a place of Indigenous wisdom and knowledge and creating space for new knowledges to enter into the conversation. I loved it when I took the inaugural Truth and Reconciliation through our relations <laughs> program. And it always started every day and ended every day with the sharing circle. And I felt that was just such a lovely way to start and a touchstone way to end. It set up the day and it closed the day. It was really lovely. Can you talk about the plan behind that program? Who was it meant for? How had you hoped it would affect them and affect them to do what? I was thinking about the very first uh, cohort uh, the other day, and I was kind of giggling. And I was like, wow, we really tested a lot. And we really filled the calendar days. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, that first cohort, just how committed they were to the learning and the process and how generous everybody was with just saying yes to what we were offering. Yeah. And so that feedback from that program helped us to really whittle out and learn certain things like less is more, creating more space for interaction and connection and relationship. Sometimes I think we're so excited and we want to share everything that yeah. we think that we want to gift others with. And sometimes the best gift is little seeds to be planted and to let the participants guide the conversation and the direction of where the program's going to go. And I think that's been a really good learning for me as well, is just how to intentionally hold space for whatever happens to emerge. So the Truth and Reconciliation Through Right Relations Program was really intended for settler communities. At that time, when we were bringing it to life in 2016, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had just wrapped up. And so their calls to action 
had been shared and the Indigenous team at Banff Centre at that time felt called to the responsibility of uplifting those stories and the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and all those Indian residential school survivors who shared their stories. So we felt a tremendous responsibility to bring that work to life in the institution that we were working in. And so we really started asking, how might we be able to contribute to this work? And how might we inspire those who might not have known about the Indigenous worldview of Canada's shared history? And the thing was, we had been running programs for over 40 years with Indigenous leadership and with Centering Indigenous Wisdom. And so we asked the question, how might we be able to inspire an entire region to learn about Canada's shared history and move into the act of reconciliation and how we can keep truth and reconciliation as part of the conversation moving forward. We wanted to inspire others to share that there were people in the uh, country that were doing this work. And then we wanted to invite them to move into personal commitments because some of the work of doing this is what we know is reconciliation is not an Indigenous thing. It's actually an individual responsibility and we can all contribute to the conversation. And we also knew that we needed to move it from the logical brain into the heart and the self-connection. Maybe we should be calling it a story-informed approach or a relationship-informed approach to truth and reconciliation, because our theory of change has evolved quite a bit mm. over the five years. So we started with truth, inspire, action, and we've actually moved it into, you need to build relationships first. So it's building community and connection. Then it's revealing the truth of Canada's shared history from an Indigenous worldview. And then it's inspiring. So to hear those stories of inspiration, but then it's also about individually taking responsibility for our own contributions to the conversation and how our individual actions impact the entire system. And then the newest piece that we've added on, even just in this last year, is how do you support learners and those committed to this work through implementation? And so I love how the work has just evolved and continues to grow. And I'm more and more convinced that it is a journey. It will never be done and that it's a constant evolution and I'm learning more and more that we all have different entries and pathways into and through the conversation. And that I don't believe that there's a right or wrong way. I think your journey and how you move through it is the way that you're meant to be called into this work and to move through it. It's interesting that you say that it's a lifelong journey. Have you resigned yourself to this being lifetime work for you and maybe not even seeing changes in your lifetime? And how do you sit with that? And are you okay sitting with that, right? And I know you have two daughters. So for you to be able to go, I'm doing this 
and they'll see the work I've done. I may not see it. Does that drive you? When I first started doing this work, once my daughters were born, I knew I was committed to stopping intergenerational violence and harm. That was a really driving, motivating factor for me. And the reality that I have two young, beautiful, smart, Indigenous women who I'm raising and the responsibility that that carries for it. And so I also knew that I lived in a valley that's predominantly made up of the dominant culture within our society here in Canada. And I chose to remove my children away from their nation, the land that we're connected to, our community. So my goal was to prepare my girls for when racism impacted them directly, because I didn't want it to be a story of harm with their very first interaction. I wanted them to know who they were and to be proud of who they were and to be able to respond when racism happened to them. And so that they could be proud and continue along their growth and journey as strong Champagne Jacques women. And be prepared for when it happened, not if it happened. Exactly. And so that really was a driving force to me. And then I think the other one, what came to life for me as I stepped into this work, because I really didn't know this was going to be my life journey. I'm a true believer of following pathways and seeing where the emergent opportunities are and kind of stepping into the spaces that you're called to. And upon reflection of where I am now, I noticed that my whole life, has been in support of developing the responsibility and accountability for me to hold this space and work. It's fascinating. I was born to a beautiful, strong, fierce Champagne Jacques woman. And my dad is a English and Scottish descent. And so I have been born into mixed race. And so I've held this two world seeing since the time that I was conceived. And then it gets even more complicated. My dad held a public profile, which was literally the queen's representative. I even just start beginning to question how my mom reconciled that within her own personal journey and how I'm reconciled siling that because to have within like literally within me mm-hmm. the dna of those that were imposing colonial harm and those that it was being po- imposed upon so this has been a new awakening for me and trying to see what that means and how i step into it but then i see the roles that I've been gifted with and the work that I do. And I am so standing in the truth that I'm following into the work that I'm called to do. So I fully believe this is a lifelong journey. I feel like our paths are created for us and we just keep moving forward. And I think whenever I think about if I've done enough, am I doing enough? I go back to one of our elders teachings and it was at that truth and reconciliation summit. 
And he shared with us that he doesn't ever want us to say that what we're doing is just a small thing for us to stop labeling that because we never know the power of the words that we share or the stories that we bring to life or the spaces that we create. And by creating those spaces for transformation to occur, we don't know the ripple effect or the impacts of it. So what might feel very small to us is actually really big to somebody else and to the system. And so I don't actually think about my personal contributions. What I get most excited about is seeing what others have been able to do and be inspired to do as part of their journey. And so I fully believe that it's a collective. It's like, even though we're individually contributing to it, it's more than just ourselves. Why do you feel, if, if in fact you feel this, that the arts is uniquely poised to show us injustice and move oh. the viewer to address it? I fundamentally feel like artists are two or three years ahead of culture and society in terms of landscape mapping, asking the critical questions, seeing what the responses are, and are really able to move audiences from a place of logic to heart. So I think that the arts have just have a tremendous opportunity. I take the story of Gord Downey and the tragically hip and what he committed himself to in that last year of life and working with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. He reached and elevated the importance of the conversation to audiences who might not have cared Mm. to know or to learn about Indian residential schools and their impacts on Canada's social fabric or social construct or our entire foundation of who we are. And so through his music, through cinematography, through literature, had an incredible platform and following and changed the conversation in one night to three million people. And is continuing to do so even after he's gone. Would you say that that's what we should demand of leaders today around issues of equal representation and ensuring equitable spaces is that they use their platforms to whatever that may be, whether you're the head of a company or someone with power within an organization? Well, from the worldview that I come from, I say absolutely, but I don't know the world that they come from. Mm. And so I don't understand why they wouldn't And so for me to see somebody who looks like me, talks like me, thinks like me would be fantastic to start seeing those in organizations. I love that we're having arts institutions across the country who now have Indigenous leaders. I think the invitation to have more people that represent Canada into the senior leadership, into the boards into the makeup of what our institutions look like can only create better systems that are relevant and impactful. 
So if you had to do a lot of teaching, and I put that in quotes, and knowledge knowledge transfer within these organizations around accessibility and care for you and other Indigenous staff and participants? From an Indigenous worldview, there is no question about my responsibility as an Indigenous woman working within Indigenous leadership. For me, it was a responsibility to carry and lift those voices and to ensure that the story of truth and reconciliation is never forgotten. The generosity of those Indian residential school survivors who shared their story, it's my responsibility to keep those stories alive so they'll never be forgotten. That we can move forward from a place of how to build new pathways together. It was the elders who told me that my ancestors gifted me with this wisdom and knowledge Mm -hmm. and the strength because I could weather the storm Hmm. and create the pathway. It was white colonial leaders who were the ones who said, this is not your job. But something that I had to unlearn, and it's really been an amazing and wonderful journey for me. But for me, in order to bring to work truth and reconciliation, in order for me to bring to life indigenization, in order for me to bring in decolonization, I realized that it starts with me. And so I had to learn about truth and reconciliation within myself. What does that look like? It's a whole lot of learning brand new things about yourself. What did it look like to indigenize myself? What did it look like to decolonize myself? And what are the challenges of that when you're brought up in both worlds? And so there's a beautiful poem in this book towards grading the poem is written by cash ahenikyu and it's called an academic indian job description as an indigenous person working in an institution we need to be experts not only in the western colonial ways but also within our community responsibilities Mm -hmm. and teachings and learnings. So I'm just going to ask you what you think makes a good ally. You recognize your social location and you create the spaces of the places of privilege and power that you hold to invite conversations in that are inclusive of Black, Indigenous, disabled, people of color, You find voice and know the language to be able to shift and transform the systems. And you're not afraid to speak up, no matter how uncomfortable that is, because it is uncomfortable. I think you're allies because you see a world that's inclusive of everyone. You create spaces, policy, legislation, funding that reflect that. Is there an artist or writer or advocate uh, we may not be aware of that you think we should be? Well, I'll share a couple. Elwood Jimmy and Vanessa Andriotti have created this beautiful book called Towards Braiding. And it's just sharing conversations and dialogues that they've been in relationship to community with on how to build inclusive spaces from an Indigenous worldview. Mm-hmm. And so it's so good. 
when I was reading like the introduction about the journey of an Indigenous person in a colonial institution, I almost had to ask myself, I was like, did they interview me for this? (laughs) And they didn't. (laughs) However, the story and the pattern was so resonant. Mm. And so to have this language out there and this understanding And what I really like about this book is they take both sides of the spectrum of a colonial worldview and an Indigenous worldview and offer ways not to privilege one or the other, but how do we braid these knowledges and wisdoms together, intentionally honoring and coming together to create something new that's inclusive of both Both. worldviews. And It's beautiful. And so you can see on the spectrums how they've laid it out and to where a proposed ideal state might be. Another resource that I love and I use often is dismantling racism Mm -hmm. and the work of Tema Okun of the characteristics of white supremacy culture. And what I love most about that is not only listing off the characteristics, but they provide antidotes and suggestions of if you notice this pattern, why don't you try this? And so for me, it's been really good just because I could always sense that something was off, but I didn't know why it was off. And so this was the language that helped provide me with grounding on how to move forward. And then other artists who I think are doing amazing work. I absolutely have been witnessing and watching the work of Kim Harvey and how she's entering the conversation and leading the conversation on race and diversity and inclusion. What is one action that we could take to move ourselves from ally to accomplice? I think in all the spaces, if there's nobody in the room who you're making decisions about to create the space to ensure those people are in the room for decision-making and not just one, And should it be in the room or should it be you going to their space? That is the ideal around the campfire in circle or in different areas, in longhouses, in the potlatch houses, taking the time to learn about one another. And I think that's the important thing about it. There has to be a relationship and reciprocity and learning together. I want to thank you so much, Lexi, for bringing your... (laughs) your smarts, your generosity, and your always wonderful spirit to us today. I'm so grateful to call you colleague and friend. And I look so forward to following your next projects and adventures in your life. It's going to be so great. Thanks, Tam. And thanks for creating this space for allies and accomplices. As Lexi said, if we are recrafting systems, education, child welfare, justice, health, language, and culture and arts, to include Indigenous ways of knowing and Indigenous history and stories, we must include Indigenous voices in the entire process. At a minimum, they must be invited into the room and to your table, but even better, go to their spaces and their circles. Throughout the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, 94 Calls to Action, is littered a call to the government and settlers to participate with consult, collaborate, and gain informed consent from Indigenous peoples. I will put links to the writers and their work Lexi mentioned here today in the podcast details for this episode. Merci Marc Maziad pour la musique. 
Thank you to Don Saunders Dahl for the podcast artwork. Thank you for joining me today. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, including Siksika, Kainai, Pekani Nations, the Sutina Nation, the Stony Nakoda, including Bearspaw, Chiniki, and Wesley Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Continue this important learning journey with me in future Ally to Accomplice podcasts.